0: Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today I am joined by Kyle Anzalone, the news editor at the Libertarian Institute. Check out his show, Conflicts of Interest. Links will be in the description below. Kyle, you have such a terrific archive of work. You not only publish news items, you have articles, you have podcast videos. If someone wants to get an introduction to your work, is there a podcast, an article, a video that you recommend them to?
1: I would just say, like, you probably want to listen to a couple episodes of my show because I do, like, a news-based show. And so it's all, like, you know, it's just what's happening in the world today. So it's hard to, like, point to an episode where I really talk about libertarian foreign policy because that's not what I do. I just want to talk about the news. I'm a libertarian, and so everything is through the perspective of libertarian, com and everything like that. But, uh, yeah, I cover news, so if you want to check out what I do, just Check out a couple articles. Once you start to read them, you'll you'll pick up what's happening in the world real quick, and uh, hopefully you like it.
0: So when I watch the news. I get a lot of uh, hubris from the political class. It's a lot of, you know, hey, we might have to take on China and we also might have to take on Russia. So uh, she and Putin better watch out. So I came across this article. This goes back to right after uh, the Afghanistan pullout. This is in mid-2021. The article's titled, Our Greatest Strength is Liberty, Not Force, by a guy named Jeffrey Warnick, linked to the description uh, link to the article will be in the description below. Kyle, I want to walk through this article uh, almost uh, c- a couple of sentences at a time. I will start us off. Let me know uh, what you would uh, like to uh, expand on and what people really need to understand if they really want to get a grip on having a proper understanding of uh, foreign policy.
1: Article, uh, I, I mean, the most important yeah. science is the first one. So go <laughs> ahead.
0: Our failure in foreign policy is bipartisan.
1: Yeah. So this is this is the most important like lens, I think, to look through U.S. foreign policy through is that it's not that the Democrats are weak or the Republicans are mean and don't care about human life or the racist or things like this. The foreign policy is 100 percent bipartisan and the only consistency with foreign policy is that every time the presidency changes hands, the new president seems to get more hawkish. And so, you know, the, of course, like when uh, Barack Obama was running for president, he was running against George Bush's at least the war in Iraq and was, you, you know, sounded pretty good. And there were a lot of people within the anti-war community who jumped on the Barack Obama bandwagon because you know it it sounded good but once he took office he opened up the drone office and just let uh bush's torture ogre john brennan decide to bomb who whoever he wanted from some troll office in the bottom of the uh white house they had these meetings called terror tuesdays you know he went it bush had wars going on in iraq and afghanistan the middle east and that was bad but by the time Obama leaves office, it's Pakistan, Yemen, Libya, Somalia. I, I mean, the drone war and just the U.S. interventions across the Middle East hugely expand. And then when we look at the, you know, Donald Trump, of course, you know, he ran on, oh, maybe I could get along with uh, Donald Trump. Or, not down. Trump Vladimir Putin, and of course, the narrative around him was a hundred percent. Oh, Putin or Trump is Putin's puppet and everything like this. Well, the the reality is is that Trump took several steps that. Uh, by uh, Obama refused to take when it came to how much support he was willing to give the government in Ukraine, uh, get, providing them weapons. He really escalated. You know, Obama started the pivot to Asia. It's not like Obama was weak on China. He started a massive military buildup in the Asia Pacific targeting, trying to encircle China, Trump just ramped that up and turned the speed up to hundred. And now Biden has gone completely off of even the, the you know, the time Tom Woods three by five card of allowable opinion. Well, on China policy, uh, bro, Joe Biden is kind of ripping that up and, and moving completely away from the like five decade long consensus of one China. And, you know, we're going to maintain a relationship with Taiwan will sell Taiwan some weapons, but, you know, Taiwan isn't supposed to be a major non-NATO ally, which is what the U.S. is moving towards. We're not supposed to recognize or even support Taiwanese independence. We're supposed to recognize that China and Taiwan are part of a single political entity. This is enshrined law, U.S. policy, and Biden is routinely pledging uh, that he will go to war and put U.S. troops on the ground in Taiwan. Uh, to, to go to war with China. And if you look at the the votes on a lot of this, um, I mean, now that Biden's in office, of course, it's pretty much just Rand Paul and Thomas Massey. Maybe you get some of these uh, right-wing populists, uh, Matt Gaetz, Nancy Mace, uh, Josh Hawley. I'm sure I'm leaving off a couple, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, even. Uh, Laura Blobbert uh, isn't always bad. Uh, but for the most part, you you know, Everybody on the Republican side and the Democrat side is bad. When Trump was in office, uh, I think there was a little bit more interest from the the squad types and Barbara Lee and actually trying to rein in the president. But but now we have none of that at all. So uh, the, the foreign policy of always escalating. Every situation demanding complete dominance over every sector of the world is 100% bipartisan foreign policy. And, I mean, I mean good thing this article is short, Keith. I just tell the people to read this first sentence. But it's a very short, punchy article, so I recommend reading the whole thing. This is fantastic.
0: Arkel goes on. It fails to recognize that the use of military force doesn't work. It fails to recognize there is no American empire the conversation of good versus evil is no longer effective. Countries will preserve relationships with Russia and China. Our economy is no longer the strongest in the world. It has competition, and we no longer have a strong currency. Before getting into the currency aspect, what do people need to know about uh, the War with Russia, a potential war with Russia, and uh, what are some bullet uh, points about a uh, potential war with China?
1: Well, I, you know, I just want to mention here too, Keith. This was written over a year ago, right? And so he yeah. accurately predicts that when the U.S. tries to isolate Russia from the rest of the world, that's not the case at all. You know, Americans completely miss this. But there was a, a conference of the Shanghai. Uh, cooperation organization. This is a Chinese led trade bloc, uh, And now I think has 14 countries that make up 43% of the world's population, a quarter of the word, uh, world's economy. Uh, and Turkey, uh, a NATO member, is applying to be the 15th member in this. Uh, President Putin attended the conference for this group. He met with uh, Chinese President Xi, uh, India's President Modi. And so we could see that like Russia is clearly not isolated they are meeting with major asian powers and you know uh they've maintained a relationship with turkey a nato partner throughout this uh you know mexico hasn't condemned russia here Uh, You know, if we look at the trend in Latin America, uh, Russia's partner, Venezuela, is only expanding its relationships uh, as, you know, there's been new governments in Peru and Colombia who are no longer interested in just, you know, being subservient to Washington, but want to go their own way and develop their own relationships with countries in their neighborhood. And, And so... Yeah, I mean, I think that like that right there is really important. Also, you know, this being written right in the middle of the downfall of the the government of Afghanistan is you know a really great thing to say, of course, because it says you know we can't dictate the world by force, and that's exactly what we learned in Afghanistan. If there was a if there was a military, and if there were a people. That you would be able to force, right? It's the most advanced military in the world, and one of the like least developed people in the world, right? You would assume with that you would be able to get subservience, and we we obviously didn't get that. Twenty years later, we we come, we go. The Taliban are still in Kabul. What do you know? So uh, that's a lot. Now, what uh, Russia and China like? What what were you asking for, Keith?
0: When it comes to Russia, give us a couple bullet points. There was a coup in 2014. Walk us through how we got from there to today, if you just had to narrow it down and summarize.
1: Yeah, so there, Ukraine has always been a very corrupt state. So there's a lot of people who are, you know, upset with the government in Kiev. And, and this starts to boil over in 2013 and 2014. Uh, but in 2014, one of the things that happens is very militant neo-Nazi elements get very involved and, and essentially hijack the protests. There's the leader of the C-14 gang and. Uh, the C14 stands for the 14 words of the white supremacist creed. Like these people are a bow neo-Nazis, not, you know, I'm labeling some guy who votes right of me a neo-Nazi like this. These people like, you know, believe in white supremacy, the, the Hitler message and all that ugly, ugly stuff, right? And so he's saying that look, these would have turned into a gay pride protest if it wasn't for us. We overthrew the government. Yeah, you're only 10%, but if you're the most militant 10%, you could, you know, change the country. And so with that group taking power, you know, they're, they're white supremacists, they're Ukrainian ethno nationalists, and a, a good portion of Ukraine is made up of people who are ethnically Russian, and so this is set uh, apart, and uh, the, the biggest event here was, I think it's in 2015, the burning of the Odessa Trade Building, where there was a bunch of Russian citizens in there, and these neo-Nazi elements set fire to it, and so then you have uh, the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass uh, Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. These are regions of Ukraine. Uh, the Donbass borders Russia. The Crimean Peninsula is the most southern region of Ukraine, and yeah. Uh, Crimea votes to join Russia and is annexed. Uh, Russia takes over the Crimean Peninsula. There's not like battles or anything like that. 50% of the Ukrainian military there just defects and joins Russia. In the Donbass, civil war breaks out. Ukraine tries to take a bet. They say they're you know engaging in this terror war. Uh, largely, it's these uh, neo Nazi aligned groups, the Azov battalion, which is absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard uh, that, that begin to fight in the Donbass. And this ends up being a year long kind of frozen conflict and this brings us to uh, 2022 in February when uh, the the general ceasefire that had not ceasefire uh, agreement the Minsk Accords that had kept the fighting on, on a pretty low simmer was completely abandoned by Ukraine and its western allies as Ted Galen Carpenter pointed out in I believe in Cato and the article was definitely published on September 30th. I remember the date. He said that, you know, we have made Ukraine a de facto NATO member. And so with those two, uh, things going on. Russia lets to invade Ukraine. And we have now had the seven month-long fight. And I guess the biggest development Keith really in the whole war happened just this week with Russia annexing four regions of, of Ukraine. The Donbass republics I for, referred to earlier, Donetsk and Luhansk, and then two southern uh republics. And you know that they, they did this with the vote, but of course you can't hold an accurate vote during wartime. So that part is kind of a uh, you know, it, it's military uh, tactic, thinly guised in democracy is, I think, what Russia did there. But anyways, Russia, I think, took about another 15 percent of the Ukrainian territory with that move.
0: And then when it comes to the China-Taiwan issue, I'm in America. I might be looking at this and say, I hate to see uh, some big bully bully a uh, s- someone in a vulnerable situation. So therefore, the U.S. should pledge their allegiance to Taiwan in case of a Chinese invasion. What uh, What is uh, that mindset missing? What, what does that uh, person need to know about the situation?
1: So China has a very long policy and a policy geared towards peaceful reunification with Taiwan. They do want to have more uh, control over what happens in Taiwan. But the more America says that we're going to Defend Taiwan, the more America says that we're going to uh, supply Taiwan with military equipment. And uh, from at least the perspective of the Chinese government, encourages Taiwan to declare independence and secede. The more China is going to look towards a military solution. And if we're just being realistic here, Keith, the Pacific Ocean is really, really big. And China's on one side of it, and Taiwan is right next to China. And, the, you know, America is on the exact opposite side of it and if china wants to uh, i and this is even admitted by american military officials there's not a lot that the u.s could do if china surrounds the island and so rather than provoking china to seek a military solution uh you know just encourage as much diplomacy as possible that gives the taiwanese as much freedom as possible now look if taiwan wants to fight china like that's on the the taiwanese and that's up to them like how you know much they want to fight for their independence but you know we're libertarians keith we don't believe in liberating the world and you know the the taiwanese are no more special than the people of afghanistan and you know we see that us trying to create a more free society anywhere in the world doesn't lead to
0: that the article goes on he says we refuse to recognize the state of the world as it is. This is no longer the Cold War, America versus Russia, good versus evil, where America was by far the biggest economy in the world, and the dollar reigned supreme. We need to be honest with ourselves and recognize we are no longer a superpower. The era of military hegemony and dollar hegemony no longer exists. We abused both for too long. The day of reckoning is here. We need to accept this, and it was a bipartisan failure that got us here so imagine that you are a an advisor you get George Kennan's place talking to Harry Truman and everyone since Kissinger's place what would you have advised the American government to do once it had the empire to make sure either they didn't abuse it or they didn't lose it what path should they have taken
1: Yeah, I mean, retrenchment and just, you know, bringing everything home that we can, scaling back the military as much as possible, and just being an economic giant, right? You know, if every country is trading with us, then our culture is, you know, being traded to every country and that's how we're going to impact influence and everything like and look if there's a country that doesn't want to like trade with the america and like maintain their own backwards culture there's nothing the people of the america could really do about that and we've seen that with afghanistan or cuba in these other countries where we've tried everything possible uh we we've used all of our empire might on these you know, various small, weak countries and have been unable to change them for decades, either, you know, trying to use all of our economic power or all of our military might. It, it just simply doesn't work. And Keith, I guess that there's one thing I, I would um, just add, like a little bit of nuance in this article, it, it would just be to say that America is still a superpower. It's just, and in the first paragraph, he says America isn't an empire. America's an empire. America's a superpower we're just not a global superpower, right? We can't determine what happens in Eastern Ukraine, but that doesn't mean that the majority of Europe isn't taking American marching orders under NATO, or, you know, just because we can't uh, prevent China from taking Taiwan doesn't mean that almost every country in uh, the Asia Pacific is an ally and would do whatever the U S wants. And so we, we still are a superpower, Uh, I I guess, and the only reason I add that little bit of nuance is because I think it makes the right winger sometimes a little bit apprehensive when they're like, oh no, we're going to lose our military Might now. People are going to treat America like America has treated Iraq and um, America still isn't a rock, right, Keith? Like we have our nuclear arsenal. We are a major world economy. We produce things here and in ways that no other country can and look the rule of law here i'm a libertarian it's not great but there there, there's pretty good property rights here most of the time you know what i mean like it's not like if you go out of town for a couple months keith you're going to come back and somebody somehow has a title for your house and has moved in which you know there's a lot of places in the world where that's kind of how life is sometimes
0: yeah i'm uh definitely familiar with that the uh people who would oppose this Uh, And they say something like, well, uh, if Russia goes one inch into Ukraine, we got to threaten a nuclear exchange with Russia. If China goes into Taiwan, we got to defend them. First of all, one of my favorite quotes ever is, he who attempts to defend the world in the end defends no one. He who tries to be a friend to all ends up being a friend to none. And it's so vitally important. It was said like 300 years ago. But. It comes uh, with a lot of wisdom, even to military generals. Dwight D. Eisenhower, in 1956, the Soviets went into Hungary to crush the rebellion, and Eisenhower did not have a large-scale military response. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure he invited Nikita Khrushchev to Camp David in response to that. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, after the uh, mass murder in Czechoslovakia that the Soviets committed in 1968, Lyndon Johnson did not respond to Militarily. And then in 1983, when Ronald Reagan was president and the Soviets shot down an American aircraft with a congressman on it and they killed him, a guy named Larry McDonald, there was no military response. And the Soviet Union uh, came uh, crumbling down eventually. So we don't have to say, look, there's this n- new libertarian idea. It's so- We're like dumb hippies who just live in our heads and just want this utopian world to work out. We have actual examples of people with a lot of military experience being on our side and threatening the danger of this. John J. Mearsheimer wasn't in the military, but the point is uh, even so-called realists who follow the George Kennan philosophy we're saying the U.S. is pushing Ukraine to be tough with Russia, giving them almost a war guarantee, much like the British gave to Poland in 1939 or that Russia gave to Serbia if it was playing tough with Austria in the First World War. So this is no small feat that, you know, we're threatening nuclear exchange over Taiwan or the Donbass region because we don't like that they even democratically voted years ago. This was b- long before this military occupation took place. So it, it it's absolutely unbelievable. Are there any other times you could think of where, uh, we didn't have this neocon response of, you know what, th- that demog- uh, th- that nation has crossed the line, therefore we have to go to war. Are there are there any other historical examples you use that t- you'd like to convince people with and say, look, we don't always have to respond with the military and it can work out.
1: No, and in fact, this is like one of my has been one of my big frustrations under the Biden administration. It just doesn't make any sense. If you want to try to isolate Russia from the rest of the world, then you re-enter the Iran nuclear deal and allow the Iranian energy back on the market. Or at the very least, you start to relieve some sanctions on Venezuela, where what you don't like Maduro because he's a socialist and kind of bad to his people. That it, it, you know, the only historical example I can could think of here, Keith. Is it, it seems like Tony Montana at the end of Scarface just doing as much blow as possible and, and thinking that they're going to be able to take on the entire world? You know, Kamala Harris is at the DMZ provoking the North Koreans. What are we going to do if North Korea tests another nuclear weapons? Put more sanctions on Pyongyang. They're they're sanctioned by everyone who's willing to implement American sanctions already. It's not going to make a difference. And yet they continue to provoke the the North Koreans continue to provoke the Chinese. They want to isolate the Russians, and as the Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi recently said, the more countries America sanctions, the stronger the sanctioned uh, the network of the st- sanctioned countries get. And so, you know, it's one thing if you want to just try to isolate Russia, and then you don't have Venezuela, Iran. China, Zimbabwe, Myanmar, North Korea, and a dozen other countries under sanctions, then it's much easier to isolate Russia. But now all these other countries are already sanctioned. So there's no downside to them at all to doing business with Russia. And, and, you know, like you basically have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in a large countries that I know this is a lefty term, but the global south does generally, pretty well defined what countries we're talking about here uh, that are willing to do business with the Russia and ignore us sanctions. And, and there's just no possible way that they could really expect that they could, you know, when the, when all these economic and actual military wars at the same at that time. And yet they, there seems to be no recognition of that. And it's full speed ahead, Keith pedaled to the metal, Um. again, it's hard to think of like why the the White House is acting this way.
0: Exactly. And and I love what uh, the author mentions uh, discussing uh, economic growth and the importance of having a strong domestic economy. Uh, I love uh, Thomas Sowell's uh, take on this. He said, The very same people who say that government has no right to interfere with sexual activity between consenting adults believe that the government has every right to interfere with economic activity between consenting adults. So the more freedom people have, the more chances they have to make mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges. And that is what that that is really one way that we could influence the world, first of all, leading by example. And if countries aren't trading with us, well, I don't know, make them jealous, become really rich, become really wealthy, produce a lot of good things that they'll want to have so bad that it'll create a black market incentive for them to go around their government's embargo. There's so many things, yet the psychopath class jumps us right to nuclear exchange with Vladimir Putin, who asked to join NATO in 1999, reaching his hand out after they're no longer communists, they're moving towards an Eastern Orthodox path. But Uh, Of course, they have to spit in their face and humiliate them, just like uh, Germany in Versailles. And, of course, uh, the dollar uh, hegemony no longer exists. Well, it's uh, very classic. A lot of uh, economists will explicitly say monopolies are bad because they provide worse quality and higher prices than would otherwise exist under competition. Also, the Federal Reserve should have a monopoly on the currency. Well, what do you think? The same exact economic laws or general terms apply. So if we really want this strength, I think we have to embrace both domestic and uh, foreign policy freedom principles. Anything else before we read the last two paragraphs?
1: Just to, to expand on your point there about Putin wanting to join NATO in 1999 and, you know, the how the West has slapped his hand away. It's almost like Biden doesn't remember the past 30 years, my entire lifetime. You know, I remember in the movie Terminator 2, the kid actually asked, like, why would we get in a nuclear war with Russia? I thought they were our friends now. And I, you know, distinctly remember from my childhood, my impression of Russia growing up was Vladimir Putin was the first person to call george bush and offer assistance on killing terrorists real assistance not like hey you know man if i could help out let me know but you know, I'll, I'll see what I could do. They were offering to allow the Americans to use all the old Soviet bases in Central Asia to move military equipment into Afghanistan. They were they were willing to help the Americans fight the terrorists after 9-11. And somehow 20 years after that, they're now the unthinkable enemy. I, I mean, I, I love the independent media this past week has been doing a great job of uh, back when like Putin and all these people had a little bit more hair. You got like Putin and Biden standing together on all these world event stages now he's hitler are you serious like 20 years ago like these guys were your best friends so you know what's changed and it's the american military industrial complex needs an enemy
0: of course, of course, in uh, in almost every example, um, and this was even after Putin had accused the West of arming terrorists in the uh, Caucasus Mountains. So he was even willing to uh, turn a but uh, blind eye to that. Did you uh, see him make that uh, accusation in the Putin interviews with Oliver Stone?
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh, there's old episodes of my foreign policy focus podcast. They're probably in like the first. 100 episodes where I broke down all four of those interviews by Oliver Stone. Absolutely Mm -hmm. excellent. If anybody really wants to understand like kind of how Putin thinks and and how he likes to at least present himself, I think that's very helpful to understand like how him and the Kremlin communicate and what's going on in Ukraine today.
0: Me too. Yeah, I thought Oliver Stone did a uh, phenomenal job. I know it costs money to watch on YouTube. Go to the Libertarian Institute. I have provided a summary analysis and lessons learned of all uh, four episodes. So yes, I I think you're definitely right about this. I don't love that the U.S. You know, is paling around with Joseph Stalin in the Second World War. I don't even like that they talked to Mohammed bin Solomon today, but it is a heck of a lot better than the alternative where civilians end up having to bear the cost of these uh, conflicts i mean uh pat buchanan's great point was always yeah we've sanctioned uh, all these places but i look at saddam hussein i look at milosevic i look at fidel castro they look well fed to me <laughs> so it's like it's always these civilians that have to pay the price for uh these uh, horrible leaders it's uh, it- it's really tragic Article continues. At the end of Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood says that a man has to know his limitations. We need to learn and accept ours as a nation. We debased our military. We debased our money. We were reckless with all the power we had. We treated both with disrespect. And now here we are, no longer a superpower in a very competitive world where we have limited to no influence. Again, we need to turn to the wisdom of george washington avoid foreign entanglements our relationship with the world should be based upon commerce trade any thoughts on that no section?
1: beautifully written uh, the only thing i would say is that th- there's no indication in the year since this was written that the white house is in, in any way turning this direction and as i said i think uh, rather than dirty harry we're getting tony montana
0: and it's not something horribly uh d- distant a uh, very common thing is uh, people uh, advocate a principle of my body, my choice. For, exa- uh, for for instance, if I don't have the right to my body, well, then who the heck else does? They own not only their body, but mine, too. If we extend that to the economic realm and realize that economic decisions are simply people expressing their preferences with how they choose to uh, allocate their scarce time and their scarce money on this earth. Then we could embrace that uh, policy and principle of unilateral free trade, open discussion, and we wouldn't constantly be vilified. I don't know if you've seen uh I remember, uh, especially like probably uh, 10, 10 years ago, there were a lot of people in the comment sections of YouTube, a lot of people uh, confidently on social media, saying that uh, they thought things like 9-11 were needed to... Um, uh, to, to humble the American empire, which is not too crazy. If you can imagine people support Hiroshima because, well, we had to do that to Japan. There are some people across the world who say, well, uh, I think America needed 9-11 to, uh, to, uh, d- to really uh, get a grip on the reality of things. It's amazing that th- they never... Uh, assume that there are downsides to any of this they go yeah well we might have to go to war with this person or that person they almost never talk about the downsides of first of all the deaths and the financial costs and the ruining of the currency as warnick has mentioned here but uh, they never talk about the reputational costs it's like there's no downside there's only upside we might have to defend taiwan we might have to uh, send uh, some more money to the Poroshenko government and the Azov battalion. Uh, how is it that such a blatant scam is able to continue with all these intellectuals on the same side and the people not being able to see through it? Do you have any thesis there?
1: Yeah, because they they like take it even further. And so it's not just that you know everybody has to agree but you cannot dissent right because if you are not in line with going to war with saddam even if it keeps even if you have nothing positive ever positive to say about saddam hussein in your entire life it, but other than i really don't see proof that he was making weapons of mass destruction you're a terrorist if you say look I don't want to live in China. Communist governments are oppressive. We all know this, but they're not committing a genocide against the Uyghurs. And they use, you know, data with a decimal point in the wrong place to try to prove that the genocide was going on. Oh, look, now I'm a communist. Or if I say, boy, in Uh, 2008, William Burns, then ambassador to Russia, now director of the CIA, wrote a memo to the State Department saying that for Russia, the brightest of all red lines was Ukraine joining NATO and was seen as a security threat, not just by the hardliners in Russia, but by every single person in the Kremlin. And this was going to provoke a serious response, just saying like, hey. I'm not saying that that Russia was right to invade Ukraine. I'm saying that you all knew that if you admitted uh, NATO uh, Ukraine into NATO, Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and you. You know, made them de facto members anyways. And so this was a predictable consequence of your actions. Well, now I'm a Putin propagandist. This is this is how they keep everybody in line and establish their narrative is that you you can't dissent or else you're no longer an American. You're hurting your country, Keith. You're making your fellow countrymen more vulnerable by articulating factual dissent to the, the, the common narrative.
0: It, it's the uh, classic uh, guilt tactic uh that uh you know M- Megan uh, M- McCain will use this saying oh i hope Julian Assange burns in hell he's a cyber terrorist as if just like uh, putting these like sticky notes on this hero uh the, like tugging on superman's cape like as as if she has any cr- credentials but you i think you're totally right you hit the nail on the head they're almost like uh, stroking this fear of people are just terrified of uh social disapproval it's like that old Jerry Seinfeld joke he goes people's number one uh, fear is uh, speaking in front of an audience. Second is death, meaning if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. People are so terrified of social disapproval that if you uh, just align them with not just, uh, of course, you know, you're, you love Mussolini. You love Adolf Hitler. You love uh, Vladimir Putin. Even saying like you're Neville Chamberlain, like an ally of America. Chamberlain's the one who declared war September third of thirty nine. The fact that it, it war wasn't his first move, that's enough that they need to write uh, to, to write you off. And look at the example you used of that uh, these two are in like a major position of uh, uh, of who knows. What These people are really in a position to know what they're talking about. William Burns, the current head of the CIA. This was in 2008. What was his role? He was a ambassador to Russia, ambassador
1: to Russia Russia under Condoleezza Rice as secretary of state.
0: And then the guy he's quoting is Sergei Lavrov, isn't it? The foreign minister since 2005. Isn't that uh, who he's yeah, referencing? I mean
1: he's yes in the memo he's referencing a co- uh, conversation with Lavrov but he's just articulating that this is the policy in the Kremlin I don't think that part was necessarily quoting Lavrov I think that was like William Burns's position on it which I think makes it even more important and powerful you know what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, like, a- absolutely. Burns is it's-
1: assessing that this is the position of everybody in the Kremlin. And and then he has, like, the quote from uh, Sergey Lavrov, net means net. Like, you know, like, this is absolutely, like, no, this will not happen. And just before, they had put both Georgia and Ukraine on the path to NATO membership.
0: Yeah, and uh, th- that was under uh, G- George Bush. All right, the article continues. And unfortunately, we refuse to recognize that coercion is a bad policy, always and everywhere. All right, Kyle, this is going to be rough, but I want us to go through these quickly. I I, I want to uh, name an intervention uh, since the start of the war on terror. Give me uh, the primary uh, r- results that uh, occurred and the Downsides. You mentioned in Afghanistan, we replaced the Taliban with the Taliban after 20 years in uh, Iraq. What were uh, the downsides of uh, going into Iraq and kindly liberating them from Saddam's rule?
1: Well, over a million dead, a civil war that really hasn't officially worked itself out all the way in Iraq. The government there is a complete train wreck. They held elections like two years ago and still haven't elected a prime minister. It, it, it takes months and months to even count a vote. There's violence all the time in Iraq still, and I mean, from the position you know of Successive White House is like every White House wants to like disempower Iran in the Middle East, and nothing has built up Iran more and uh, allowed them to have more ties in the Middle East than uh, the United States overthrowing Saddam and putting a democratically elected government in Baghdad, which, since it's a majority Shia country, ends up being a Shia government, which is friendly with Iran.
0: Downsides of intervention into Libya
1: so libya is still a failed state uh, i think they estimate like two hundred and fifty thousand people died during that war the stories that you read from libya since the fall of the gaddafi government are insanely horrific people uh refugees from other african countries try to go through libya and basically what would happen time after time you would hear these stories where uh the you know the people would call home they're being tortured by some group uh they demand money from the family the family sends the money and then they sell that person to another group who tortures that person or there was a uh, regularly used mass rape in the Libyan prisons uh, to try to take fighters off of the battlefield. So they would like just rape large groups of men with broomsticks and things like that and then film it and then use that as blackmail to try to keep people from the battlefield. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, died trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea after the you know, Gaddafi died. Not only Libyans, but people from uh, uh, across Northern Africa and the Sahel. And if you want to look at what going on in like northern Africa today like the, the top of the ice cream cone there uh, it's you know coup after coup after coup and a lot of it's because AFRICOM uh, the U.S. African Command is involved in waging different military games and we pick out our favorite generals from Burkina Faso or Mali and then we train them up real good and then they end up pulling off a coup but a lot of it is because after Gaddafi fell, the jihadist elements that helped to overthrow Gaddafi uh, with the support of the United States went back to other countries in the region and supported different groups and inflamed all of these uh, different ethnic rivalries. And so you'll read a story in Mali about how 150 people died uh, because this one group attacked this other group because, you know, this group's now allied with jihadists. Uh, I think there was just another coup this past week in burkino faso i mean it's a complete train wreck and it's all because of obama's uh war in overthrowing gaddafi
0: and then they had this bizarre lie that wolf blitzer on cnn said that gaddafi was giving his troops viagra as a tool of mass rape i mean just the propaganda that came out of uh that one and um obama wrote a book and like pinned the whole thing on sarkozy that was actually funny Uh, results uh, to uh, the U.S. involvement in Pakistan.
1: So uh, I guess the the big thing that I'll point out here is the U.S. drone war in Pakistan pushed this group, the E Taliban, over the border of Pakistan into Afghanistan to get away from the uh, Pakistani army. There they adopted uh, the black flag of the Islamic State and are now what's known as the Islamic State Coruscant faction. And so if we look at you know the, the disasters during the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan and the near weekly or so suicide bombings around Afghanistan uh, since the U.S. pullout by the Islamic State Coruscant group, that's just a, a direct repercussion from uh, Obama's drone war in that country.
0: When it comes to Yemen, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was, from what I understand, responsible for the USS Cole bombing. This was October of the year 2000. Well, what are uh, the uh, results of uh, this conflict in Yemen?
1: So uh, there, there's... Tons of things going on in Yemen, Keith. There's the drone war against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which has been going on for years and years and years. But more recently, in 2015, the United States, bats Saudi Arabia, waging mostly an air war, but also like some proxy ground conflicts They use a lot of Sudanese military um, militants. They have the UAE backing different forces. But largely, uh, particularly the UAE, uh, assumed all of the jihadist groups under their their Banners and, and they now fight with the UAE. And so we've essentially flipped in that war from what we are doing under Bush and Obama to the the late Obama years in 2015. And rather than fighting a war against a QAP, we're fighting a war against uh, this group, Ansar Al Riyah, or otherwise known as the Houthis, that control uh, the majority of the, the population of Yemen. If you look at a map, you're like, oh, they barely control like a quarter of the country. But that's where like two thirds of the population lives, like mostly. Yemen's an empty desert and so they they control like most of the populations the capital and everything like that well they're opposed to AQAP and yet we're concerned about bombing the Houthis right now because we had to back uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE's ambitions in Yemen which I think are mostly like just stealing their oil and their ports and any wealth they could squeeze out of Yemen
0: when it comes to al-Shabaab in Somalia what's happening there
1: so al-Shabaab I think they informed till 2009, but you know, where they're there are 2006, maybe, but they're lumped into the the terror war. But this is really a whole separate thing. Al Shabaab did swear allegiance to. Uh, Osama bin Laden, but their emergence in Somalia really roots back to uh, the, the time that Somalia became uh, like a somewhat anarchist state. There, there you know, wasn't a, a foremost strong government in Mogadishu and so then there's a lot of tribal groups that emerged. When these tribal groups started to stabilize Somalia a little bit, and Scott Horton, our boss at the Libertarian Institute, has a fantastical, fantastic article that goes through all of this a lot more detail and a lot more eloquently than I'm going to do here, but essentially the U.S. tried to overthrow this, you know, loose system of, uh, like, tribal councils that was holding uh, some stability in Somalia with the Ethiopian army, and... In that the group that emerged in Somalia as one of the most powerful was Al Shabaab. And so it was, you know, the U.S. inviting the Ethiopians in that really led to the rise of Al Shabaab. Now they control the bottom, I don't know, third, quarter, maybe 20% of Somalia. The U.S. has waged a year's long drone campaign. Every time a drone strike gets dropped, they say, Oh, boy. Well, that's because, uh, you know, or that's because there's Al-Shabaab there and we killed 10 Al-Shabaab. And then some American journalist ends up going to that village and talking to the people there and they're like, what? That was a minibus and there was three kids going to school and one old man that walked with a cane. So none of them were al-Shabaab, and and it turns out the U.S. just kills militants. Also, the U.S. caused the largest terrorist attack in uh, African history in Somalia. Over 600 people died in this bombing, and what happened was the U.S. was trying to wage a counterinsurgency operation. And there's this key town in southern Somalia that produces a lot of bananas and there's a lot of wealth there. And so the U.S. tried to come in and establish themselves as a security force, and then they allied themselves with – this faction of the Somali military that went in and massacred 10 people in this village. And then a couple of weeks later, some guy from that village goes and is trying to get into, I think the green zone of Mogadishu where all the international compound and everything like that is, and uh, has this massive, massive bomb in a dump truck and doesn't get there. Detonates on the way where all like all these refugees live and just, I mean, wiped hundreds of people off the face of the earth. And this was like chopped up to al-shabaab but there's like no real contact between this guy and al-shabaab and it's pretty clear that there's a a lot of hostility uh from the people in that region over the the massacre that occurred by the somali forces there were no guns in that village by the way like this was a hundred percent verified that there were no guns in the village and some guy from that village tried three times like went to a somali general and was like we see an american drone flying overhead please for the love of God, tell the Americans we're just farmers and don't have guns. And the lazy ass general, the Somali general, I think it sounds like was just negligent and said, okay, but didn't bother to pick up the phone and call somebody because that's not what they do in Somalia. And you know, then, then the Americans show up in the village with the Somalis and and forces and they kill 10 people. And
0: yeah. Incredible. Uh, What do uh, people need to know about the results of U.S. uh, intervention into Syria?
1: Oh, wow, I forgot about this one. Uh, So this is this is terrible, Keith. Uh, In the Arab Spring springs up. There's protests, legitimate protests against uh, the the Al-Assad government, the Obama White House and particularly, I think, Hillary Clinton and John Brennan, uh, I think Brennan was CIA by then, and Hillary Clinton's in the State Department, but Brian might just been like an advisor or something like that at that point, uh, really pushed to get the U.S. to step up uh, the, the support for the resistance to Bashar al-Assad. That resistance becomes violent, ultimately morphs into the Islamic State. Who knows how many people have died in Iraq and Syria because of this war. The U.S. now occupies a third of Syria, backing an illegitimate Turkish government. We pretend that they're better than the Assad government, but from all indication, they're really not. They have tens of thousands of people in this al Hall prison camp in U.S. occupied Syria, Keith, and they just live in squalor. There are a bunch of former ISIS wives who have raised all these children that were, you know, from uh, you know, the, the the sons of ISIS fighters. And it, it's, it's just, it, it's a terrible, terrible situation. In U.S. occupied Syria. Uh, the U.S. is opposed to what our NATO ally Turkey is trying to do in Syria. Our allies in Syria are their absolute enemies. And now we've implemented sanctions on Syria that deliberately keep the country from rebuilding after this war. And so, you know, there's uh, people all over Syria right now dying of cholera, right? There are people dying in Syria because They had so much diarrhea that they dehydrated and it died like that's unthinkable to happen to anybody in this country who isn't either like, you know, some degenerate, you know, drug user on the street or somebody in like, you know, the most advanced high hospice, residential type care, right? But this is like what normal people have di- are dying of right now in Syria. Uh, it, it, you know, babies freezing to death in the winter in that country. Uh, and it's all because of U.S. sanctions, and intentionally so. You know, Rudy Giuliani, this cl- clip is going around, was bragging about how U.S. sanctions in Iran led uh, Iranians to trying to sell their organs for $500. He Like, he was saying that these are the conditions that we want to create in these countries so the people rise up and overthrow their governments, which of course never happens, right? Like if the, if, if the Iranians were starving you to death, Keith, would you be like, I want to kill the you know, my leader? No, you would want to kill the leader of the person that's
0: starving your family to death, of
1: course. It's, it's just unreal.
0: And then uh, this, again, is the classic uh, lie about, uh, well, we're going to go there and we're going to defeat the terrorists and we're going to fight for our freedom, never recognizing that there's a second side to this equation, the potential downsides. Uh, Today's uh, blog post at the Libertarian Institute titled, Marco Rubio is a Liar – What I did was I uh, used a number of quotes to respond to his initial claim. Uh, And this is a quote directly from Osama bin Laden talking about the potential downsides of foreign policy. Bin Laden briefly says, their leader, that idiot they obey, was claiming that we envied their lifestyle when the truth, which this pharaoh would like to hide, is that we are attacking them because of their injustice toward the Muslim world and especially Palestine and Iraq as well as their occupation of the land of the two sanctuaries. So, I mean, the uh, the, the warnings were there. Uh, the, the warnings were there for uh, the war in Russia with uh, the William Burns memo you mentioned previously. The warnings are there with China. President Xi is uh, t- telling Biden about the potential downsides of Pelosi, you know, flying these jets and landing into Taiwan, but they're just so psychotic. They don't care to uh, look at... Uh, the cost that everyone else is going to have to bear for their belligerence. Uh, just as John F. Kennedy was not about to allow the, the Soviets to have uh, missiles in Cuba, uh, these countries are not going to want uh, n- n- Taiwan to be a de facto NATO member, nor uh, will uh, Ukraine be uh, uh, allowed to um, ha- have uh, their time to do the exact same thing. Article continues. Our founding was predicated upon our own fight to be free on our own terms. It had nothing to do with conquering others. We have a legal principle that force is only legitimate when the threat is direct and imminent. We perverted that principle in the world stage. The reason I think this is important is because you don't want to just strip people of their identity. I know a lot of people who say uh, America's job is to liberate the world. This was the guy. Um, who was talking to Roger Waters on CNN. He goes, what about our role as liberators? And Waters like had to pick himself up off the floor just because it's such a joke at this point. But that mindset is real. So you don't want to just say, uh, actually, this thing you love is total trash. Say, no, no, this thing you love, I think you have to change the, your start date and maybe look at the Declaration of Independence. We hold truths to be self-evident. There is an objective truth people have the right to life liberty the right to pursue their happiness so long as they don't initiate violence against peaceful people you have the the state does not have the right to monopolize weaponry because then that would give them a complete monopoly on force, and that would be absolute government supremacy. There's all these things in our heritage that we can look to. I mean, America goes a little uh, existed a little before Dick Cheney was alive to uh, issue all these uh, ridiculous things. When uh, when it comes to we only got two more sentences. Thank you for uh, y- your time today. Um, when it comes to uh, making sure we uh, attack the right from the right, so to speak, or make sure that people don't think we're hating. On the country, America, we live here. And of course, I love it here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Do you have uh, anything uh, that you say to people that makes them uh, really understand your position so they realize we're attacking a subset of people who have occupied the regime as opposed to attacking uh, uh, all of America? So
1: especially if I'm talking to the right, I'll just go into like, look, look, look where America is located strategically on the map. And then think about the Americans, you know, they're very proud people. They're gun wielding people. They are, you know, wealthy and, you know, like have the ability and the time to defend themselves if needed. You know, we don't need to be meddling in Iraq to keep Americans safe. Americans can't keep themselves safe. Washington tends to put targets on the bats of Americans. Mm. And so what we need to do is take the targets off of our bats. We'll, you know, it, we, we, live in a country where fortunately we could defend ourselves if we need to um and uh look the the u.s government spends what 10 times more than what russia does on military. Oh, probably much more than that now but you know five times more than what china does on its military uh, what 12 15 times more than russia does on its military either we're really 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 bad at doing military things or we don't need to spend that much on our military right like what you're telling me the chinese are five times better at building battleships than the americans and, and things like that that we had to spend five times more and then i feel like those arguments like particularly on the right tend to diffuse it although sometimes i have to articulate them just a little bit better
0: exactly and uh, but uh, wars of aggression are constantly what bring these other empires down whether it's the Romanov regime or the Soviet regime, the Ottoman Empire, the French Empire, the German Empires, the British Empire, wars are constantly bringing down these – the Japanese Empire, wars are constantly bringing down these places, and the American Empire just uh, keeps on uh, provoking the wars because they directly reap a large amount of benefits – from uh, provoking the wars. They get all the votes. Marco Rubio gets all the cheers from the morons in the crowd when he talks about blowing up Chinese aircrafts. And they never uh, have to bear the consequences. They're seen as heroes because they're uh, the ones who we look to to uh, defend us. Article ends, saying, we used it not to defend ourselves, but rather an attempt to bend the world to our will. And have used the dollar as a weapon in the same capacity hegemony we are an even greater nation when we reject the concept of hegemony and embrace voluntarism liberty and freedom kyle Lanzalone, where is the best place for people to find your work
1: the libertarian institute keith knight where i think you're the managing editor i'm the news editor so i write multiple news stories almost every day for the institute if not i'm writing them at antiwar.com and reprinting them at the institute Uh, i want to tell everybody i am speaking this weekend in denver october 8th at noon at the capitol uh on behalf of julian assange If we want to keep doing this, if we want real journalism, we have to fight for Julian Assange. There's a huge event going on in D.C. Uh, My colleague Dave DeCamp from antiwar.com is speaking there. So if you're in the D.C. area... I. Pretty sure they're at the Department of Justice, uh, so head down there. But if you're in the Denver area, please come out, support, check it out. Uh, I think the, like the Colorado LP is involved in the event, so there will be some uh, great people there to hang out with and everything. But uh, please come check that out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at KyleAnsLone underscore and uh, AntiWar.com.
0: Thanks to everyone for watching Keith and I, Don't Tread on Anyone, and the Libertarian Institute. Kyle, thank you for your time, brother. Thank you, Keith.